Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, can I please speak with Greg Grandin? Uh, this is he. Hello, Greg. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the Quarantine Tapes. Thank you so much for taking my call. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. Tell me, where do, where do I find you at the present time? How are you uh, bearing this, this uh, quarantine? Well, we are, we are upstate in the Hudson Valley in the Catskills, so it's, um, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty idyllic. In some ways, so it's not. We're not. We're, we're based in Brooklyn normally, but we were up. We came upstate, and um, and so it's it's uh, it's fairly far removed from from some of the worst. You're probably follow. You're probably following some of the worst. I I must begin by uh, by also congratulating you on on your Pulitzer Prize uh, win this year for the end of Miss from. The frontier to the border wall in the mind of America. Uh, congratulations to you. Um, oh, thank you. You've, thank you. Uh, there's a line by by Herman Melville that you've thought about a great deal, which I didn't know, and which I'd love you to unpack for us. Where he says, "Seeking to conquer a larger liberty, man." but extends the empire of necessity, even from your remove now in the Catskills. What does that line mean to you at the present time? Well, I read it as a... Uh, Melville uses it as an epigraph, so did I. I used it for a previous, an epigraph in a previous book called The Empire of Necessity. And uh, Melville uses an epigraph in one of his short stories and he attributes it to a, an unpublished manuscript in his possession. And I, I think, I think my understanding um, from Melville's scholarship is that they, they, Melville scholars think that he, he that was Melville's own gloss on, on Hegel, on Hegel's understanding of the relationship of freedom and necessity that that we achieve that that human you human consciousness that human beings move towards a greater freedom through the recognition of dependence or necessity on others. This was both Melville's gloss on Hegel and his critique of the United States of a certain kind of definition of freedom that imagines freedom as an escape from dependence, as an escape from necessity, as an escape from social relations, and hence seeking to, to conquer a greater uh, liberty man but extends the empire and necessity at every attempt to kind of break free just winds up creating new necessities and and um and this is a way of thinking about and i think using melville to think through a certain kind of american exceptionalism that what's ultimately at the at the core of what we call american exceptionalism a freedom of 
a definition of freedom as freedom from restraint rather than a recognition of mutual dependence with other human beings. Do you, do you feel uh, that sentence uh, resonates even more so now, and if so, how? Well, I think that it, it resonates very clearly, and, and what we're seeing is kind of the unraveling of, of, that, of that what was a fairly coherent, and, and, and the coherence was created through the experience of the United States as an ever-expanding nation or empire, but a, a certain definition of, of freedom as freedom from, as I mentioned, as freedom from restraint. And you see it in the kind of neurotic, hysterical protests against, you know, against even the mildest social policy. I mean, we saw a preview of this with the Tea Party under Barack Obama in which, in which the most mildest attempt to deal with the collapse of the financial housing market and dealing with the catastrophic consequences of, of the previous, of the Bush administration's unabated militarism in the Middle East, the reaction to Obama was, was the Tea Party, a kind of an expression of this in which, in which any kind of government intervention, even the most mildest, centrist, corporate-friendly form, was understood as a, as a form of slavery. And, and for me, it's kind of what is ultimately racialized about American notions of freedom, because this notion of freedom as freedom from restraint was forged in the social experience of expansion. And what, and, and what that practically meant was the expansion of chattel slavery, the dispossession of Native Americans, uh, war on Mexico, different regimes of racialized labor, be it chattel slavery, be it, be it, be it NAFTA, be it undocumented migrants and the dependency on them. And to go back to your question about do we see it today, uh, I, I, the Tea Party might have, was a preview of it, but we certainly see it in the, in, in, in the reaction a couple of weeks ago to the mildest attempts to enforce some kind of public health policy um, and, and get people to stay in or get people to wear masks. You, you know, these, these kind of... Coke network funded protests, but even though they're, they're kind of astroturf in the sense that they're funded by, by the money power, they still, the ideology behind it, I think, resonates in American nationalism. It's been, a, it's been eclipsed, obviously, with the, with the real protests of deep-seated anger and deep-seated immiseration and deep-seated uh, exploitation and domination, as opposed to the imagined domination of these kind of, um, you know, uh, what would we call them? The kind of, you know, sequels to the Tea Party that was protesting the, the COVID uh, initiatives and, and, and prevention policies. You know, it's always extraordinary for me to, to speak to historians who have a, a long view um, and, and your answer is so, so excellent. You tell a story, you tell an anecdote, a telling anecdote that I'd like you to tell our listeners because it's so excellent. I could, I could say it, but I know you will tell it much better. This extraordinary story about Andrew Jackson in 1811 when he was transporting slaves and got stopped by a federal agent. I felt that that story, in a way, encapsulates a lot of what people believe to be a certain kind of freedom. Yeah, this was Andrew Jackson before he was before President. he had made his name. 
before he was president, before he became a national name in, in the War of 1812, before he, he launched the destruction of the Creeks, he was a slave trader. He was a lawyer. He was a landowner based in Tennessee around Nashville. And he was, uh, he's the only president that we know of that personally tra- transported slaves. Uh, we know that many of the founders of the United States were slave owners, but Andrew Jackson personally transported slaves from the slave market to plantation, and uh, and he did so in couples, you know, the, the chains on the, around the neck of, of enslaved peoples. And he was moving a shipment of enslaved peoples um, along, along a road from Nashville down to um, New Orleans, or actually in the other direction. And he was asked by a federal agent, and this went through an indigenous uh, reservation, and he was asked by a federal agent, this was in 1811, so it was a few years after the abolition of the Atlantic slave market, not, not slavery in the United States. And so the slave trade was internal, and the federal government was trying to enforce some mild regulation of slavery, make sure that slaves weren't contraband, that they weren't in- illegally imported from Cuba. And so he was stopped by a federal agent and asked to see his documents proving yeah. that he was the owner, you know, that the, the enslaved people were his pose- rightful possession. And he flew into a race, depending on who he spoke, who, who told the story. He either showed his guns or, you know, or he show- pulled out a constitution and said, this is the only passport I need. So you need a passport to travel. And then he, then in, in his letters to Washington, he, uh, he clearly equated being asked to prove that he was the rightful owner of slaves with slavery itself. And this is the essence of, of a definition of freedom as freedom from restraint. The idea that, that any kind of regulation, even regulating uh, the institution of slavery and human beings as property is itself a violation of individual sovereignty. This is an extreme version, but certainly it resonates down that kind of bellicosity that we see in militia movements and tea parties, but also I think more broadly broadcast throughout uh, uh, U.S. political culture. This this idea of in, this, this intense beholden to to individualism. Obviously, there's a sharp edge of the knife manifested in these politicized right-wing movements, but I think it's also disseminated more broadly uh, in political culture, a certain kind of freedom. And this is what I mean by a definition of freedom as freedom from restraint that denies the the social basis of existence, the the mutual interdependence, the fact that uh, the smallest common denominator isn't one, but but uh, human beings isn't one, but two. You need two people to make a human. Looking at this moment now uh, from a historical perspective, do you see certain rights being taken away that might not be retrievable? In in what sense? Well, it would seem that we're we're at, we're at a moment now where a lot of rights are in jeopardy. And to some extent, also, some of those rights that are in jeopardy, one can't really see those rights disappearing because it's kind of a, a sleight of hand moment where we're, yeah. all, we're, we're focused. That's why I always think it's interesting to speak to magicians. Because, yeah. you know, things are happening in, in one realm while we're focused on another. 
And I think yeah. I think with your long view of history, you might be able to delineate some of them that are that are being threatened. Yeah. Well, certainly, as you said, the sleight of hand, the magical sleight of hand, is to is to obsess about these of a certain kind of right that is supposedly being trespassed upon, um, that fetishizes individualism, that fetishizes and, and holds as sacrosanct individual rights and sees as perverse social or economic rights. And it's certainly one of the ways in which I think that U.S. power blocks within the United States have, have diverted attention um, when actually what is happening is that the real kind of trespass against, against individuals is in the realm of corporate control and monopoly and these, the, the, the in, in, intense and incredible amalgamation of economic power, which becomes political power. Right. Um, you saw some of these themes obviously raised in the Bernie Sanders campaign but i think there is i think I, that's the realm in which a, a more fundamental notions of of rights and justice is being contracted and trespassed on even as a lot of the discourse is around more you know the loss of of individual freedoms there's a confusion between obviously between state power and market power mm. and and, mm. and a lot of and a lot of focus on on, on the power of the state, but historically in the United States, it's been in the realm of private economic power that individuals have been subordinated and dominated. And that realm is often held up, that domination is often held up as legitimate when any, any attempts by the state to regulate that realm is understood as, as a form of tyranny. Professor Grandin, uh, bear with me for a moment. I, I want to read a quotation to you from Naomi Klein, um, which was on, um, in, on Democracy Now!, and I want you to react to it. Um, she, she says, we often talk about governments like the Trump administration as governments that are committed to climate change denial. I don't think they deny the reality of climate change. Donald Trump has had to adapt the construction of his golf courses because of rising sea levels. They all know it's happening, but they think they're going to be all right. They think their families are going to be all right. They think the wealthier countries are going to be all right. And these governments are adapting to climate change. They may not be adapting the way the United Nations would like them to adapt by cutting emissions, by building seawalls, whatever it is. They're building border walls. They are adapting through this unleashing of white supremacist ideology and creating the intellectual rationale for allowing millions of people to die. That's what I mean by climate barbarism. How do you react to that? I think Naomi Klein's absolutely right. I think elsewhere she said something along the lines of the only thing that's scarier than than a nativist right-wing movement that denies climate change or climate catastrophe is a nativist right-wing movement that accepts the reality of climate change. And I think ultimately that is what Donald Trump's administration and the broader movement that, that took him to power, Trumpism, represents. He rep he's the first climate change politician. I mean, setting aside the economic interests 
in, in the fossil fuel industry and his commitment to reproducing that, that industry. Um, I think what Trump represents is uh, an acknowledgement that the premises of a previous universalism, mm. um, and in some ways, you know, Trump is just Trump is just pointing out the contradictions and hypocrisy of the older order, right? The United States consumed and and disposed of a vast majority, a disproportionate amount of the world's resources. So there was no earlier universal equality that Trump, you know, is traducing. But I think that. Um, I think what Trump represents is a recognition that uh, if the old liberal universalism was based on the premise, if not the actual practice, that there was formal equality, that constant growth meant that everybody, every nation could sit at the table, all boats would rise. Mm. Trumpism represents a more sober assessment of the fact that, that limits have been reached, that we live in a world of scarcity. And that we should organize nations along lines of domination that reflect that scarcity, where the old liberal order was based on a premise that ever expanding growth meant that you can you could at least pay lip service to the to the promise of equality and universalism. Trump is a more honest expression of of the realities of power and domination. That said, you know, it's tempting to think of Trumpism as a more honest reflection of how the world works, a, a brutal realism, but a realism nonetheless. I think Trumpism is its own form of enchantment. Enchantment. It's based on enchantment and mystification. It's based on the idea that all we have to do is build a wall and we can continue as, as we work. You know, we could continue to to burn coal, we can continue to torture. So all of the, therefore, all of these kind of expressions, that every kind of expression of, of, um, of not being told what to do, a certain kind of political petulance becomes part of the culture war. No one's going to tell us, you know, we're not going to submit to the Paris Accords. We're not going to know what we're going to pull out of the Geneva Convention. Nobody, you know, where the old liberal order tortured, but they tortured under the table. Trump says, we're just going to torture. We're going to bomb. We're going to torture. No one can tell us what to do. So it's based on a, a certain kind of idea that the world can, or a certain, or at least the U.S. can continue to do what it's doing if we just build the wall. You know, obviously that is not the case. You know, there, you know, there, there, there is a real world out there with real limits and, and, and COVID is just one one expression of that. While I was listening to you, I was both thinking about the Melville quotation and the Andrew Jackson uh, anecdote and feeling just how what you're describing as Trumpism fits so perfectly in, in both, yeah. both yeah. cases. I mean, just um, it, it's mind boggling. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering uh, you know both as a as a professor going back to teaching i imagine this fall perhaps um <clears throat> will you go back to teaching in a different way do you think will will your assignments change and another way for me to ask you this question if you if you were the editor of a well-funded newspaper um and overseeing a, 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 that newsroom what would you send your reporters to go investigate 
you know, it's, it's interesting uh, to go back to the question, the, the division or the separation between realms of, you know, state and public power and, and private realms of economic power in which most people experience domination and subordination. Cy Hirsch, a famous investigative reporter, mm. you know, he, he, you know, he made his name investigating war crimes, yeah. crimes of state public, you know, crimes of public authority. He briefly tried to investigate corporate malfeasance and basically gave it up. You know, Mm. he just didn't have any access to Mm. it compared to public documents, which allows for uh, more revelation. So it's an intro. I I like telling that story because he's the, you know, probably the most the preeminent dogged investigative reporter that the U.S. produced who revealed one transgression from my lie to the bombing of Cambodia to, you know, onward. You know, we can go on and on about what of Cy Hirsch's contribution to, to public knowledge of state abuse. But when he confronted with trying to make that move into the corporate world, basically gave up. You just don't have access to it. So if I was, <laughs> if I had unlimited resources, I, I it would certainly be to investigate corporate power because i think that that is where the the locus of authority and domination take place um so yeah i I had occasion to to interview cy hirsch and it was one of the most memorable moments i've had every question got a 20 or 25 minute answer which was uh, (laughs) which was tremendous cantankerous and so deeply informed um I know your students. What what would they? What are they going to be studying under 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 your leadership when you go back to, to teaching? <laughs> this last semester, I was teaching a course on uh, on on the history of the border wall. It was was that that was that's kind of the end point of my last book, the, yes. the end of the myth, and and so it was it was I was more or less the course was designed around many of the themes in the book. And then the pandemic happened, and and in some ways it was uh, it was an illustration of many of the of the through lines of the course in in real time and acceleration. I mean, we the contradiction of undocumented workers who who were deemed who were both hounded by ICE and Border Patrol and yet deemed essential workers. I mean, you, you can't get anything more illustrative of the paradox of freedom and necessity than that right and um and and so uh, you know the, the the transition to online teaching and in that particular course went fairly well because we were able to, to upscale from talking about these themes as they related to the history of the border and border wall to, to to more on a on a global immediate scale so i imagine that i'll design classes uh, along those lines, I think there's a hunger for that kind of exposition. Definitely. Will there be something new on the syllabus in the fall that you wouldn't have included? Um, will we not in this moment? Or is this something differently put? Um, I'm asking you for a very short reading list of something that will <laughs> will help me, help me understand this. Moment. Well, certainly anything by Mike Davis. <laughs> Mike right. Davis you know, a premature catastrophist. I mean, I, I the monster, after the, the monster, you know, I was, you know, I had, I read City of Courts. I yeah. read, you know, I read the Ecology of Fear and, you know, I didn't really pay attention to his books talking about pandemics. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and then it's just remarkable how, how, um, 
you know, it's certainly Mike Davis, I think is, it's his moment in many ways. Um, uh, Naomi Klein, as you mentioned, I think is invaluable. Um, you know, I haven't really thought about uh, of what to include. I'm still, you know, some in many ways kind of processing. Right, of course. What's happening? You know, especially now, things are happening so fast. With, yeah, yeah. You no. know, the way that they trend. You know, a little just two weeks ago, it was it was all of the protests against against COVID restrictions. You know, and the and the how ludicrous they were, but how resonant they were with the U.S. political culture. And now all of a sudden, we've, you know, in the blink of an eye, we've entered this completely different moment. You know, you, you quote a line in, in closing of Martin Luther King from, from his Beyond Vietnam speech, where he says, there is such a thing as being too late. Is it too late? Are we too late? Well, and, if we are too well, late and if we are too late, what are we too late for? Or what is there still time to do? I think Martin Luther King represented a, he obviously was grounded in continental philosophy. I mean, obviously he was a theologian, but, you know, he, you know, he was, he was, you know, a Marxist, a Hegelian. He, he had a sense of, of the sweep of history and he was, uh, you know, obviously he was, you know, a, a Christian, but he was also an existentialist. You could certain kind of existentialism in Martin Luther King's philosophy and ethics that is appealing you know we're always too late you know the, i guess is the answer but you know we're never too late you know what's that great poem by by Bertolt brecht about you know you could change you know you could change your, the world in your last breath i can't remember no exactly i can't i can't that. i can't remember that poem by brecht i, I do remember uh, it's a wonderful i do remember so many of his including the one you know in these dark times will there be singing Yes, yeah, they will yeah. be singing about these dark times. What, what, um, what worries you the most, or if you prefer, what shard of hope do you have for what will come next? Well, you know what? Obviously, what worries me the most is how deeply ingrained white supremacy is and riddled through U.S. institutions and and. An ideology that there's a hatred of. I mean, this is, and it, it goes beyond racism. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk of Trump as a, Trumpism as a death cult, you know, and and I think that the dynamics that drive that death drive need to be need to be specified. You know, it goes back to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier. This this notion of freedom as freedom from restraint. Mm. You know, any 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 if 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 that is if that is such a deeply ingrained element of one's worldview than anything that reminds you of limits, uh, you know, and, and then the lot, then the, the greatest restraint is human is the dependency that we talked about, the, the social existence yeah. of, the, of individualism. Yeah. But, but in the United States that, you know, the, the, the core of that has been labor, cheap labor, racialized regimes of labor. So people of color, are an unwanted recognition and acknowledgement of both limits and and social dependency, and that to me, that's what that's at the essence of racialized capitalism, and why it seems to be inescapable. Why so much of public debate keeps coming back neurotically to to um, to race, you know, even when the, the topic isn't explicitly about race, whether it be taxes, or government regulation, regulation, or healthcare. 
And that's the most depressing part, I think, and the most scariest part, how it is capable. The most hopeful part is obviously the the protest and, and the rejection of it, this multi-class and, multi- and transracial protest movement is really is really um, unique and and powerful. Obviously, it's already changed the debate. You know, within you know less than a week's time. Yeah, yeah, and and it makes it makes me think of that Arundhati Roy is perhaps right when she she was talking about the pandemic, but maybe it's also true about the moment we're living now, uh, which is that um, it could be a portal. It yeah, could, it could, I, I mean, it I could be so, an right. opening. It could be, and you know, I, 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 I try to resist the darker moments of Kafka's quotation when he says, "There's hope, but not for us." And, uh, <laughs> you know, which, yeah. which is always—it's uh, so wonderful of a quotation because it's so dark, and invariably, it makes people laugh. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope, but it, not for uh, us. Sir. I yeah, I, I know, and and it's along those lines of that Brecht quote, like it's never too yeah. late, you know. Like you know, it's not, you know. It's, we'll find, we'll find that poem. We'll find, we'll find that. We'll find that poem. We'll find, we'll we'll find, that, poem. We'll find <laughs> that. You'll send it to me, or I'll send it to you, and we'll put it on. We'll put it online so that everybody okay. can read it. Thank you so much uh, for taking you, my Paul. call, and and let us be in touch. I I hope we meet in person, and all the best to you and to your family. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, and thank you for all your great work. It's a it's a wonderful program, and um, and thank you for having me. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.